<clears throat> last week we were uh, kind of in the middle of Matthew chapter 9, so today we're finishing up chapter 9, verses 35-38, talking about the mission of God uh, here in Woodward, Oklahoma, and to the world. I want to read that uh, for you, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Here we go. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Father, we ask for uh, the power of your Holy Spirit to teach us this morning. We ask, Father, that you would open our hearts and minds to see your truth, to both understand it and to enjoy it. God, help us to marvel at it and to rejoice over it. God, I pray that you would shape our hearts. Father, we ask that you would send laborers into your harvest. Father, we ask for disciple makers to be raised up within this church. Father, we ask that every believer at Lincoln Avenue would be a disciple maker. Father, we ask for open doors for the word of God. We ask for gospel conversations. We ask for uh, prayer partners and prayer groups and small groups that would pray earnestly. God, that you would send out laborers into your harvest. Father, we pray for the harvest in India. We pray for the harvest in North Africa and in Romania and in Thailand and in the Czech Republic and Father, to the ends of the earth. Father, we ask that you would make us a sending church. God, that we would send out many from our, our own body of believers. Father, that you would raise up and send believers who are now in the nursery and in our children's program and in our student ministry. God, that you would send them and that you would make us a sending people. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up on a farm in western Kansas and eastern Colorado, we had three major holidays in our family. We had Christmas, we had Thanksgiving, and we had wheat harvest. And of the three, probably wheat harvest was the big one, okay? Uh, so, so I resonate with this passage. I, I took a couple of vacation days earlier this week, actually, and uh, drove a combine for my dad for two or three days, uh, picking corn. They're in corn harvest right now. And uh, it reminded me of the distinctives of, of harvest in our family. So let me just real quickly, uh, if you're not from an agriculture background, let, let me tell you the distinctives of harvest, okay? So number one, uh, during harvest, nothing else is a priority, okay? So harvest, in other words, the harvest takes priority over everything else, 
Um, my mom and my brother happen to have birthdays in the 1st of July. I don't ever remember a party on their birthday. Like, I just don't ever, and I don't ever remember them even expecting there to be one. Like, like it was just an, uh, an unwritten rule that, okay, you know, that's really bad for you. Sorry about that. You know, but it's harvest time, okay? And, and this, everybody knew that trumps that. Um, I remember uh, uh, something that my wife didn't quite understand uh, was uh, I proposed to my wife uh, in the fall, and uh, so we told our parents, and, and literally, the first thing my mom said, you know, say, you say well, you know, we, got, we got engaged, here's the ring, you know, we're planning on getting married next summer. The first thing my mom said, I remember my mom saying this to, to my wife, because I remember my wife just like a little bit being a little bit offended, but she, my mom says to her, well, just, just remember, the wedding can't be at the end of June or the 1st of July, because we're going to have harvest, you know, because so, harvest will be in some way, you know, and, and kind of the implication was, you get married during that time, we won't be there, you know, I mean, that, that was almost the implication. Because in our family, I mean, that, that was just the way life worked was when it was time to harvest, everything else got set aside and that was the priority. Number two, harvest meant that all hands were on deck. Uh, everybody helps. Everybody in my family helps. Everybody in my extended family. <clears throat> From the time I was a little kid, you know, we would move from field to field, and I, I would drive a pickup, you know, eight, nine years old. I'm driving because we got to move all the equipment, you know, and there's more equipment than there is people. Uh, my grandfather, who was a butcher in, uh, in in the town that we lived in, he worked at the meat market, he he would take off work to help us move to Colorado when we made the jump from Kansas to Colorado. I mean, everybody always helped. When I was 11, 12, I, st- I stopped playing baseball in the summer so that I could be out in the field and tarp trucks for the drivers as they came in. And it was just, it was that kind of a, a, a spirit in our family that during harvest, everybody, moms, grandmas, ev- everybody participated in the harvest. Thirdly, there was a joyful anticipation of the fruit of a long season of labor. So there, there was this, this, this joy that came with harvest. Even though it was, it was the busiest time of year for our family, even though, you know, family reunions, state, uh, county fair, all of that went on hold. We did not participate in anything like that when harvest was going on. Even despite that, I remember there being a great sense of anticipation and joy because, like, this was payday. Like, this, this was the culmination of a, of, of a year of our family's work. And it was coming to fruition. And the final thing uh, about, about harvest from an agricultural perspective is there is a constant realization on our dependence on God. Like, like, like weather was a big deal. Like, like prayer was a big deal. You know, praying that, you know, harvest is actually the only time, you know, in, in western Kansas where you don't pray for rain. You know, <laughs> like you, you don't want it to rain, you know, because you got to get in and get it, you know, and, and, and wind, hail. You know, I, I remember, you know, driving, you know, moving our equipment to a field. And before we get to the field, a hailstorm, hailstorm takes out the field, you know, and it, it was that kind of just realization that, man, we are completely dependent on God here. OK, so I think all of those things kind of factor into Jesus picking this analogy in in this chapter of the Bible for for the mission of the gospel for Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church, okay? So it's clear from this passage, Jesus is on mission here, okay? So look at verse 35, it says Jesus went, he went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction, okay? So 
Clearly, Jesus is on mission. He's going, right? So the first thing says, he went through all the villages and cities. So Jesus, he's going. He's going to the people. And what's he doing there? A couple things. It says he is teaching, okay? He's teaching the word of God. He's teaching them the truths of the God and the truths of the kingdom. Second of all, he is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, the gospel. Gospel means good news. So Jesus is teaching them the word of God. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, the good news of God's offer of salvation from sin and new life in the person of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the culmination of of all that God has been doing since creation. Jesus is that. He is the pinnacle of that. He is here. He is Savior and Redeemer and Rescuer. That is what he's proclaiming. He, he's, he's proclaiming his perfect life and soon his, his atoning death to pay the penalty for sins so that all who'd repent and be joined by faith to him would have his righteousness, their sins would be forgiven, they'd be tied to his resurrection and live forever in a new heavens and a new earth. So Jesus is he's going to the people. He is teaching. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And then it says he is healing every disease and affliction. Jesus is performing supernatural miracles to confirm, to confirm the word of God. That's that's the purpose of the miracles in, in the Bible, is to give this glimpse of the kingdom of God and to confirm, to kind of put God's stamp of approval that this is what he is doing, okay? So this, this Jesus is on mission, all right? And Jesus' mission is our mission. I don't think we need to talk about that again because I talked about that last week. You know, 2 Corinthians 5, and we're ambassadors for Christ. You know, Matthew 28, go there for make disciples of all nations, right? So uh, we're, we're gonna skip that part just assuming that you guys have bought into that, that like, like Jesus, we aren't doing something separate than Jesus, right? Jesus' mission is our mission. We are, we, we are crucified with Christ. Our life's no longer our own. That's what Paul said. You know, the life we live, we're, we're living Christ's life out and this is his mission. Now, I wanna show you the, the the engine of this mission okay so every mission's got to have an engine every mission has to have something that is driving it something that is compelling people to accomplish to work to labor for this thing okay and verse 36 so Jesus on mission verse 35 verse 36 is the engine of Jesus mission okay let me read it to you again it says when he saw the crowds he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, all right? So the engine of Jesus' mission, the engine of our mission is compassion, okay? We saw this a little bit last week. Remember that uh, Jesus is, is, he calls Matthew, the tax collector, this notorious, scandalous sinner, right? He calls him to follow him. He goes to his house. There's a big party, a bunch of tax gatherers and, and, uh, and, and sinners, notorious, scandalous sinners are there. And, and right away, the religious people are like, whoa, what? Hey, that's not right. You shouldn't be doing that. You're going to get dirty, right? And you remember what Jesus says? He said, he said, go learn something, guys. He said, go learn this. Go, go learn what the Old Testament says. God desires mercy and not sacrifice, okay? So we're, we're teeing right into that with this where we see that when Jesus looks on the crowd, he has compassion, okay? When he, when he sees this mass of needy people that had come to him, when he sees the multitudes of people, he has compassion. He has compassion, why? Look at verse 36, stay here. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So let, let me describe the word harassed for you, okay? Weary, worn out, stressed, overwhelmed, burdened, guilt-ridden, 
plagued with feelings of shame over past sins, mistakes, and failures, full of doubt and feelings of inadequacy, full of anger and bitterness toward others, unforgiveness toward others, broken relationships, weighed down with a life of disappointments and fearful, anxious anxiety for the future. I think that's a great summary of harassed, okay? So Jesus looks at them, and they are wore out, battling sin and their own junk, okay? Not only are they wore out, but they're helpless. The word helpless means cast down, okay? Defeated. Uh, if they could have got out of their condition, they would have already done it, but, but, but they can't. They, they're lied to, they're deceived, they're in bondage to sin, they're headed for the judgment of God, and they're missing out on the blessings of life. All right, so Jesus looks out upon the crowd. They are harassed. They are helpless. And it says they are like sheep without a shepherd. Nobody is caring for them. Nobody is helping them. The religious leaders of the day, they're not bringing any relief to this because all they offer is rules. Okay, this, this is a common theme in the Gospels. Jesus is pointing out that to, to the religious leaders of the day, I mean, you are not offering relief to these people. You are simply piling more rules on them. Let, let me read you uh, uh, Luke. Luke chapter 11, verse 46. Jesus says this to, uh, I believe it's some lawyers. He says, uh, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So, so that, that's really all the, the Jewish religious establishment could offer was just more rules. Okay, so you're already wore out. You already feel this mess of guilt and shame over all your past junk and mistakes. You're, you're already, you know, in bondage to sin. You're already bound up on the inside with unforgiveness and anger toward others and how people have hurt you. And, and, and all, all religion offers you is, okay, here's some more rules that you need to do that you actually won't accomplish, that you won't be able to do, and you'll just feel more guilt and shame and, 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 and frustration. All right, that, they're, they're, they're like sheep without a shepherd. I was thinking about the cruelty of Hinduism. You know, just having spent time in India, just seeing the cruelty of this religious system, right? So you, you got 1.3 billion people living in really tough, tough, a tough place in a tough culture. And, and, and the offer of religion to them, the primary offer of religion is Hinduism, which basically is just more bondage. You know, it's this caste system that says, well, you know what? You know why your life's bad? Because you were bad in, in a former life. And, and the most spiritual thing you can do is just take it. Just, just take it, and maybe by taking it, you, you'll earn a little bit of merit, and maybe the next life will be a little bit better. And nobody should help you because you deserve to take it. Wow, what good news, huh? What good news to folks that are, are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus looks upon this mass of broken and worn out humanity and he has compassion. The word compassion means, it's an interesting Greek word, it actually means bowels, okay, intestines. Uh, and and the, the picture there is, is that he felt something. Have you ever, have you ever like witnessed a tragedy? Uh, car wreck happens right in front of you. Um, have you, have you ever shown up at the hospital and somebody's loved one just passed and you actually feel a little sick? Have you, have you, ever, have you ever experienced that? Like there's like a queasiness in your gut? That, that's, that's, what, that's what the language is describing there. It's, it's like you, you feel for people to the point that you, you actually feel it physically. Okay, that, 
That is compassion. So, so literally, what, what it's saying here is that Jesus literally felt sick over the lostness of the masses. I, I love Luke 19, 41. It says, when he drew near and he saw the city. I, I kind of picture Jesus cresting the hill and, and Jerusalem comes into view. And it says this, he wept over it. Like he, he draws near to, to this city, this, this city that's supposed to be this light to the world. But it's full of harassed and helpless people, sheep without a shepherd, and he weeps over it. If you struggle to be a disciple maker, hear me out. If you struggle to be a disciple maker, like, like you're a Christian here this morning, let's, let's say, I'm, I'm assuming many of you are, you're a Christian here today, you, you've turned away from your sins, you put your faith in Jesus, you're joined to his resurrection, his life is in you, his spirit is in you, but you struggle to be a disciple maker, it is probably the case that it's, it's in this aspect right here. It's in this engine, okay? It could be something else, but, but, I, but I, I believe probably for many of us, it, it is in this right here. It's, it's, it's this, this root of why you're not consistently on mission for God. When you look at the mass of humanity, when you look, when you look at the crowd, what do you feel? So Jesus felt compassion. Okay, now, and I'm asking you, what do you feel? So you turn on the news and, and you, you see our nation. What do you feel? Okay, now you've got to admit there's a lot of harassed and helpless and sheep without shepherd, right? I mean, we, we see that in America. Maybe not so much in the poverty sense, but absolutely in a confused sense, right? Absolutely in a blinded sense. Absolutely in a dark sense, right? So, so do you feel compassion? Do you feel this this tied up in your gut in sympathy and brokenness over these people. Or, man, here's the thing that I think is going to trip up the American church. Or do you feel annoyance, irritation, disdain? How stupid all those people are to believe such ridiculous things and have such an ungodly lifestyle? Do you feel a little bit superior when you look at the crowd and one word comes to mind? Idiots. That will keep you from being a disciple maker. Because now all of a sudden you, you don't have, you, you just lost your engine. You know, you're supposed to be firing on eight cylinders and, and now you're, you're skipping along on one and a half, you know, kind of misfiring. Why? Because you don't feel compassion. You, you don't see a people that are harassed and helpless and like sheep without a shepherd. You see a bunch of idiots that ought to know better. Folks, if anyone had the right to be annoyed at sin, to be repulsed at immorality. Wouldn't it be Jesus? You know? Like if anybody had the right to just, you know, come on! You know? What are you people? You deserve what you got. If anybody, it's Jesus. And, and yet, it says he had compassion. Now, don't, don't, don't try to get out of this, Okay? I know some of you are like, well, yeah, but 
there wasn't any folks in the in that crowd who were part of the political party that I don't like, you know, right? There, there wasn't any. Yeah. Do, do you not think, you know? I think there probably was. Compassion moves our hearts to feel for the sea of humanity who do not know Jesus. Compassion causes us to actually feel something inside about people who haven't seen his beauty. His glory. His marvelous promises. Why why do they think the way they do? They haven't seen his glory. They don't know. Why do they act like they do? They don't know what it is to be forgiven. To be righteous with the righteousness of Jesus. They don't know what it is to be loved and chosen and adopted and redeemed and sanctified by God. They don't know that. You know that. They don't know that. They don't know. They don't have this strong hope of glory around the corner for them. They don't have the power of the Holy Spirit freeing them from the chains of their sin. They don't know what it is to pray to an almighty father who invites them to bring all of their needs. Man, you have that. I have that. They don't know. They're in the dark. They're under the judgment of God and their future is only endless day after endless day of eternal darkness and the punishing fires of hell. Jesus sees that and he has compassion. He feels it. It it drives him to go to them and to teach and to proclaim the gospel and to heal. You know, I have to ask the question. I see that and what? What's it it do to me? So that, see, there's there's our engine problem, right? I see that in... If, if what it does to me is cause me to be indifferent or cause me to be irritated, cause me to be annoyed, cause me to be overwhelmed or unprepared or pridefully justified or it's someone else's problem, if that's what it caused me to do, I'm missing the harvest. I'm missing the harvest. Okay, so, so the engine is compassion, okay? The engine is compassion, okay? Now look at what Jesus says in verse 37, okay? So he's on mission, The engine is compassion. When he looks at people, when he looks at the crowd, when he looks at the mass of humanity, when he looks at the harvest, he has compassion because they're harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. And then in verse 37, Jesus describes the harvest and he says, the harvest is plentiful. Okay, now, I want to make sure everybody understands what exactly is the harvest because maybe that's still a little unclear in your mind. You're like, okay, I understand you, your dad cut wheat and corn, but you know what? What are we talking about here? You know, I'm still I'm still missing this thing. Okay, so the harvest is. Let's just let's let's look at a great example. Okay, so John chapter four, uh, John chapter four. By the way, uh, youth, uh, this is the the chapter Andrew assigned to me for Wednesday. So we're going to be in here Wednesday again. But in John chapter four, um, let me t- I'm just going to briefly run through the chapter. Okay, so John chapter four, they're traveling through. Uh, Samaria and uh, Jesus stops at a well and the disciples go into town to get food and Jesus here comes a woman a Samaritan woman coming in the middle of the day to get water and Jesus engages her in a conversation 
okay? The conversation at first is about water, but it quickly turns to spiritual things. Jesus turns the conversation, turns the conversation to spiritual things, okay? And, and, and he confronts the woman about her wrecked life. Her life is a wreck. She, she's alone at the well, uh, indicating that she is ostracized from her community. She's not with the other women. She doesn't come at the time that they come from. She's a shamed woman. She has had five failed marriages, and she's living right now in immorality, okay? So she's kind of a wreck, all right? And, and Jesus immediately exposes the depth of her sin and then offers her living water. And so Jesus offers her himself. He offers her the, the water that, 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 will, that will quench your thirst forever. You'll never be thirsty again. The water that I give you, he said, you know, will become a spring in you, welling up to everlasting life, all right? She finally gets it. She runs back into the village. She tells everybody. They all run out to see this guy, Jesus, who told her everything she'd ever did, who, who exposed her life and talked to her about living water. And then the disciples come back and then listen. John 4, 34. Let me just read this to you. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. I think he was pointing at, at the mass of people coming out of the village when the, the, the woman is bringing. He says, look, I tell you, the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you are entering into their labor. See, what, what is Jesus describing the harvest? It's what he just did, right? Engaging a woman who's a wreck in a spiritual conversation and offering her living water, Jesus, eternal life, that's the harvest. Her going back into town and saying, all right, look, I don't know much about this guy, but I think he's the Messiah. Come and see. That's the harvest. Jesus says, lift up your eyes. There's the harvest. All right, and so, so the harvest is engaging the harassed and helpless with the good news of the gospel. By the way, probably unpack this a little more with the youth on Wednesday. But did you notice that Jesus says in John 4, my food is to do the will and work of God? Did you, did you catch that? And I, I intentionally read that verse. Jesus said that my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. They're saying, hey, Jesus, are you hungry? Did you get something to eat? We went in town to get something to eat. Did you get something to eat? He said, my food is to do the will and work of God. You know what that tells me? This whole laboring in the gospel thing is food for you. Jesus just said it was his food. What happens when you don't eat? You get cranky, I know, but let go, go beyond that. You get weak, right? So first comes hangry, then comes weak. Then comes eventually, you're kind of emaciated. You lose all energy. Okay, so spiritual Christians who do not make disciples are not eating. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Isn't it beautiful, actually? Labor in the gospel is actually food for the believer. <laughs> like, I, I know we think, what, what, what do we think? Man, especially this generation. I am so busy, pastor. I'm so busy, 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 busy. I don't have any time for the gospel. That's like saying I don't have time to eat. Like, that doesn't work. Like, like your labor is your food. It's the thing that's going to nourish your soul. It's the thing that's going to, give you energy and vitality is this labor of disciple making.
wish we had time to unpack. 36, John 4, 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages, gathering fruit for eternal life. How incredible is it that this, this labor, the harvest, actually, it pays good. It, it pays good wages. Oh, man, that's beautiful. <laughs> I love it. All right, so, so that's what the harvest is, right? So there's a great example of harvest. The harvest is this engaging the harassed and helpless, lost world, cheap without a shepherd, engaging them with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That can be done in a million different ways, right? Verbally, it can be done uh, acts of grace, love, care, ministry. But at some point, it is revealing to them who Jesus is and what he's done for them, giving them the good news of the gospel. All right, so Jesus says the harvest, that's the harvest. He says the harvest is plentiful. What does is, what is plentiful mean? It means many, 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 many. There are many souls hanging over the abyss of hell needing to have someone engage with them in the gospel. 7.6 billion people on the planet. By the way, small group leaders, I, you know what I think would be really cool tonight? I think it would be really cool if you got like a computer or uh, someone's phone at least. A computer would be better because the screen would be bigger. And you just pulled up, pulled up uh, I think it's World, Worldometers, I believe it is. Worldometers.info, I think it is. If you just type in population clock or something like that, it'll come up. But anyway, there's this cool website and it has this, this uh, a bunch of statistical information and it has a, a real-time like population clock. So, you know, they've, they've figured out the, the growth of the population of the world and everything. And so, so you just watch it. You watch it going up. You can even watch it for each country. It's got like the top 20 countries right there on the front page. Um, I was watching it this morning. Um, by the way, India is gaining on China. China has 1.4 billion people. India has 1.3 billion people. Okay, they're right there close together. India is like... Bam, 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 bam. China's like, bam, bam. It's their, it's their, it's their child policy, you know? So India's going to, if things, if they continue like they did this morning, India will surpass China at some point, you know? Um, third, third largest nation. So yeah, China, 1.4 billion. India, 1.3 billion. United States, like 380 million. It's It's amazing. But anyway, you watch that. But then it's got some other interesting uh, little clocks on there. One, one, it's got the birth rate. So it's like the people being born. The, the sad one is the death rate. Like, like I was watching it last night. Last night at like 11 o'clock, there, there had been 150,000 people die. Stepped into eternity yesterday. Anyway, 7.6 billion people on the planet. Okay, here, here are the statistics. I got this from Andrew Knight. 2.8 billion people in the world have little to no knowledge of the gospel. 2.8 billion people. Now we're not talking about we're not talking about the millions who have heard the gospel. We're not talking about them and, and have rejected it or they're not interested or maybe maybe the, the seeds are planted but they're they're kind of in root. We're not talking about those people. We're not talking about the people that have driven by churches and have had someone stop and have a, have a Christian friend who, who mentioned the God. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who have little to no access to the gospel. 2.8 billion. Last night I timed myself. I can do a skeletal, bare bones, as fast as I can, information only, gospel presentation in about 18 seconds. And I, I'm, I'm just talking about Hey, you're a sinner broken in your sins and God loved you and sent his own only son, Jesus, to be born uh, of, a, of a virgin. Uh, he's the God man. He's 100% man, 100% uh, God. He lived the perfect life and then he died an atoning death on the cross for your sins so that if you would repent of your sin and put your faith in him, trust him, then he, you'll be joined to Jesus by faith. You'll have his righteousness in your account. He'll, he'll bear the, the, the penalty for your sins and you can be joined to his resurrection for life forever in the new heaven and new earth. You know, I think that was longer than 18 seconds. But last night I did it in 18 seconds, okay? 
So here's what I figured up. I did some math. I'm not a great math, but I think I did it twice and it came out the same, so I think it's right. But 2.8 billion people, if you line them up right now, just line them up, and, and if I went and gave my 18-second gospel presentation, 18 seconds, 18 seconds, 18 seconds, 18 seconds. I never drank, never ate, did, never slept, just 18 seconds in 1,598 years. I would finish the 2.8 billion. I just, I wanted some kind of visual for how many people that is. The harvest is plentiful. But here's the deal. It's going to be done. It's going to be done. Not not all those people are going to hear the gospel, but what I'm saying is, this harvest thing, I mean, it's happening. There's 7,000 right now, 7,082. Another, another website you ought to pull up tonight in your small group, Joshua Project. Joshua Project. It's very well done. You can, you can point the cursor on any, any country. It will give you the population. It will give you the number of, the, the percentage of reached people to unreached people. Joshua Project. But here's the deal. It's, it's going to be done. Those 7,082 people groups, there will be people saved out of there. How do I know that? Revelation 5. In heaven. Here's a, here's a picture, a future picture. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth forever. God's going to do it. You see, the problem is not that the harvest is plentiful. Okay, here's the problem. Ne- next phrase. The laborers are few. Isn't it interesting that it doesn't, it doesn't say the Christians are few? I mean, I suppose percentage-wise that is to some degree true. But that, that's not what he says. He says, the laborers, the people that I bought out of sin and put their feet out of the fires of hell and joined them to my son and given them every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, and put my spirit in them, and gave them my word, and commissioned them to go. Those that are going are few. The disciple makers are few. The sent ones are few. The proclaimers of the good news of the kingdom of God are few. The harvesters, those that are at the wells in, in Woodard, Oklahoma, when the folks who are a wreck walk up, those that will engage those people in the gospel... There's nothing wrong with the gospel, guys. Romans 10, 14. How, how, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? How are they to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? There's nothing wrong with the gospel. How are they going to believe unless someone preaches? Labors are few. Man, here's a statistic that gripped me. 141,000 unbelievers a day will enter into the world's global cities. 
okay? I think I've given you a statistic before. If you put all the people in Oklahoma, all the people in Kansas, all the people in Nebraska, all the people in Missouri, all the people in Colorado, stuff them into the city limits of Tulsa. That's the city of Mumbai, India. That's, that's like a global city. 141,000 a day. Unbelievers enter those cities, born into those cities, move to those cities. Eighty percent will never meet another Christian. Will never meet a Christian. And that grips me. Eighty percent will never meet a Christian. Never meet one. The laborers are few. Now, verse 38. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, see that word therefore? Okay, now, what would you expect him to say next? (laughs) I really grappled with this all week. What would you expect him to say next? So be a laborer. I mean, get to work. That's what you expect him to say. Therefore, and, and he says that in other places. Matthew 28, that's not what he says. Therefore pray, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. Pray earnestly. You know what's crystal clear about this? Okay, so here's something that's like undisputable. Prayer must be front and center in any strategy to engage the lost with the good news of the gospel. All right, so Prayer must be central in engaging your children, your family with the gospel. You want to win your family to Jesus? Pray earnestly. Prayer's got to be central in engaging your neighborhood, your workplace. Prayer's got to be central in engaging our state, our nation. Prayer's got to be central in engaging the other nations, the unreached peoples of the world. So grab somebody and pray. One of the things that baffles me, I'm always talking to guys, guys in particular, because that's who I meet with. Hey, man, are you praying with your wives? So often, it's, yeah, well, no, 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 we pray individually, but we don't pray together. Especially the guys with kids. I, 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 know, I know, I know, I know, your wife's critical. You know, you feel, I don't know, I don't know what you feel. You feel, uh, you know, she's always you're never good enough, and you know you don't want to pray because then it's just embarrassing. And feel really like your your kids, the people that you love most in this world, people that you you give up 25 years of your nights and weekends for these little critters to chase them around. But but you're saying that it's, it's too much to gather your wife and engage in a strategy of prayer for their souls, ladies. And I hear you guys saying stuff like, well, it's his job to lead us. We're not praying together, but it's his job. Like you're going to, I agree it is his job. But if he's not doing it, you, you're going you're gonna to put your kids' souls in jeopardy to prove a point? That's just, that's stupid, honestly. Like get, somebody get in there. 
your, your workplace. Man, is there another believer in your workplace? Grab that dude. <laughs> Say, hey, man, meet me by the water cooler every morning, 15 minutes. We're, we're going to pray for Joe, Bob, and Fred. See what happens. Man, your, your small group. We have hopefully provided a structure where believers are getting together every Sunday night. Guys, could we pray for my friend? Billy Bob. My, can we pray for my brother? Next week. Hey, guys, can we, can we pray? Hey, hey, hey. So I don't know the whole strategy, but it's very clear. Jesus says, this harvest is plentiful, labors of you, therefore pray earnestly. Man, I remember my first experience with this. So, so good. So God's just, God's so good. Um, so I, I get saved. I don't know nothing. Um, God just puts this disciple in my life, Matt Krebs, and we're at, we're at Tabor College, and uh, and he's like, all right, you know, man, we, we need, we're going to pray every day. He and I were going to pray in a room every day. I often fell asleep in my bed. I, I just can't pray in my bed. I just can't, I, like, I'm not, I have no problem sleeping. I'm an Olympic sleeper, right? So I go down this way, I'm out, you know? And so many times Matt had to carry the, the deal himself. But, but we started praying for Chris Gorman, all right? So Chris was one of my childhood friends. I got saved, moved away to college. He still had a year of high school left. Rough, rough. We'd been through lots and lots together. He had a rough, rough family life, you know? And so I, I just got laid on my heart, pray for Chris. And so me and Matt, we start praying for Chris, Start praying for Chris. You know, we're living, we're living in another, another place, another city, and we get, a, we get a call, we get a word back from back home. Chris Gorman got saved, you know. He got saved. We're like, wow, it worked, you know. And, and, and he got saved. Like, youth pastor moves in across the street before he unloads his truck. I love this story. Before he unloads his stuff, he goes and he sees Chris playing basketball. Chris is a great basketball player. He, he walks across the street, plays basketball with Chris, invites him to youth group, wins him to Jesus, Chris is a church planner in the Northwest, one of the most effective church planners. He's planted churches in South Dakota and North Dakota, and right now he's working in the Seattle area, planting churches. Incredible man of God. Pray earnestly. God would send laborers into his harvest. And God sent a laborer. God sent that youth pastor. Gary, Gary Smith was his name, I think. Why, why, why do we need to pray earnestly? Does God need to be reminded? Like, is he, is he up there and he doesn't realize there's not enough laborers? Like, like we got to tell him, he's like, oh, you need more laborers. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Is that, is that why? I don't, think, I don't think that's why. A couple reasons why. Because we, we are in desperate need. We are dependent on God for the harvest. Um, real quickly, Acts chapter one. I don't know how much time we have. Acts chapter one. There's this beautiful picture of the gospel, uh, of the, the need for the Holy Spirit. Okay, so in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has risen from the dead, right? He's risen from the dead. He's appeared to all these people. And then in verse 4 of Acts chapter 1, 4, he says, and, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Verse, verse 8, he says, you'll receive power when, when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. They have seen the resurrected Jesus. Like, like they're looking at him, you know? Like, like, man, he's got nail scars in his hands and his side. He tells Thomas, put your hands here. He is alive. And they know it. And Jesus says, but don't go anywhere. <laughs> wait. But, but, but we go. No, wait, wait. You need the spirit. And they wait. And what do they do with their waiting? Verse 14. 
all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They're just, they're gathering up and they're just praying, 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 praying. Acts 2 comes. Holy Spirit falls. They walk outside. Peter preaches a mediocre sermon. 3,000 people come to Jesus. And those 3,000 go everywhere. And within a generation, the gospel has spread through all of Europe. You need the Holy Spirit. Why should you pray? You need the Holy Spirit. Why should you pray? You need God's heart. So there's this connection between prayer and your own desires. Have you noticed that? What you pray relentlessly and earnestly. Notice this is pray earnestly. The, the word earnestly means to beg, to plead. Have you noticed that what you beg and plead God for, he, he shapes your, your desires? So why do you need to pray? I'll, why do I need to pray? I'll just answer for myself. You answer for yourself. Why do I need to pray? Because I don't have compassion like that. I, I, I need to pray because I need to, when I see the crowd, I, I want to have compassion because that's what will drive me into that place with the gospel. See, when we get God's heart, we will labor and we will send. See, if you're praying earnestly for laborers and senders, then you're going to labor and you're going to send. Right? Right? Not everybody's going to Mumbai. Thank the Lord. There's already too many people there to begin with, right? No, no, I mean, somebody needs to go there. Some Christian needs to go there. Um, but, but you're going to labor, and you're going to send. See, if those are the things you're asking God for, if, that's, if those are the things that this church is asking God for, then we're going to do those two things. We're going to make disciples here and to the ends of the earth, and we're going to send. We're going to send people. We will be the sending agent. We, we will be the money and the prayer support, and the, and the relational support, and the you go, I'll hold the rope. You go, and I will come visit you. You go, and I'll come keep your kids while you, while you take a vacation. You, you go, and, and we'll send, and we'll go. I believe God's calling out. He's calling them out from our nursery. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that a cool thought? Some kid eating his boogers and pooping his pants. He's going to go to the nations from Lincoln Avenue. And it changed the way you look at children's ministry, doesn't it? Like we're asking God. Addie was that kid 20 years ago in this church. Just talked to her this morning. On the other side of the world. Man, the coolest thing is we'll, we'll do it joyfully. Man, there is nothing like having a friend that you are making disciples with. Man, when, when like, since my conversion, all the guys that I just, you know, have this heart connection with, they're, they're guys I made disciples with. Matt Krebs, and we're slugging it out in dorm room. We don't know nothing but that Jesus saved us, and we're praying that he would save our friends. 
Do that together. Do that together. Father, help us to respond in obedience. God, you, it's really clear what you want us to do. God, it doesn't take an interpretive genius to figure this passage out. You told us to pray earnestly for laborers and for senders. And so, Father, we, we want to be obedient to that. Father, if we are not being obedient to that, please convict us. Please change that right here this morning. God, please um, grab hold of people's schedules right now and carve out time to pray earnestly and to go, to send, to labor, to make disciples, to ask you for these things. God, please give us compassion. We need that. Father, forgive us when we look at the crowd and we don't have compassion. Father, help us to be like you, Jesus. Father, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.